When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello everyone! Welcome to the new. <clears throat> welcome to um to the disability studies. Welcome to the disability studies channel in the New Books Network. I'm Shu Wan. I'm a um founding editor and host of a new channel. Um, I am a disability historian. Currently, I'm a I mean doctor student in history at the University of Buffalo. Today, I'm very honored to invite two very famous disability historians, Dr. Gerber and Dr. Dallenfield, to join our episode to talk about their newest book about the importance of disability rights in American in post-war American society. So the first thing I want to do is I want to invite both I mean the two professors to introduce themselves. Uh, my, my name is Bruce Deerenfield, and I have been teaching uh, modern American history and uh, civil liberties and civil rights for a long time. Uh, I myself am uh, significantly hearing impaired and uh, have worn hearing aids uh, all my adult life. Not that that, <laughs> not that that makes everything perfect, because it doesn't. And part of the reason I was attracted to this uh, research project is because I felt I could relate to the principal figure, Jim Zobrest, uh, on many different levels, that being one of them. So thank you, Professor Dernfield. So how about Professor Gerber? Could you please? Uh, my name is David Gerber, and uh, I taught for many years at the State University of New York at Buffalo's History Department. Uh, I've taught and written on a number of different things, but later in my uh, career as a scholar, and researcher, I took an interest in uh, disabled veterans of military conflict from a disability as well as military point of view. And that led gradually into an interest in disability uh, in general. And that brought me to my collaboration with Professor Derenfield on the uh, social history of the Zobrist lawsuit. Okay, thank you so much. <clears throat> Here, I want to personally emphasize Professor Gerber because I'm disability historian. I'm I want to say I'm much more familiar with Professor Gerber's scholarship. I want to say he is one of the most important disability historian in the United States or even in the world. And his earlier research about disabled veteran in American society is so influential, so important. Then let's switch to. Professor Gerber and Professor Dernfield's book, newest book, Disability Rights and Rituals, 
religious liberty in education. The subtitle is a story behind the Zoborist versus Catania Foothill School District. So let's begin the first question. So as we can see here, the I mean, this book is about a lawsuit between Zoborist and the, uh, and the school district. So my first question is that, could you please talk uh, talk a little bit about who is the Zebras? I mean, here, the Zebras, I mean, Jean Zebras, the main figure in this book. Um, well, let me uh, address the question of, um, of Jim Zebras. Um, Jim Zobrist uh, was born in 1974, uh, and within a year, uh, as a result of his parents' suspicion that he wasn't hearing well, was diagnosed rather casually by a pediatrician as profoundly deaf. Uh, let me talk to you a bit about the Zobrist family. The family that Jim was born into was a kind of typically middle-class family of mid-20th century, of the mid-20th century United States. Uh, both Sandy, the mother, and Larry, the father, uh, grew up in working class to lower middle class uh, families in industrial uh, cities of the United States. Uh, they met in, at, in Erie, Pennsylvania, where they were both in college, uh, and they were both students. Um, Larry Zobrist made his way through college by delivering beer, and he delivered beer to a party at which Sandy was uh, enjoying herself. They met and danced, and within a, uh, a short period of time, uh, got married. Larry uh, made his living uh, as a young married man, as a salesman for an office technology company. He'd worked his way through college and uh, had has worked hard his entire life. Uh, he later owned a dry cleaning shop in Tucson, Arizona. The mother, Sandy, Jim's mother, studied to be a teacher in college in Erie, Pennsylvania. And after uh, having a child, she dropped out of the workforce to be a homemaker for a while. But she reentered teaching relatively early in parenthood, uh, in part because the family wanted to enhance its uh, material resources. Sandy also went back to school to learn about uh, educating deaf children and to learn American Sign Language. She wanted to enhance her teaching credentials, but she was particularly interested, as she would be for the uh, all of Jim's education and beyond his education, in uh, helping him negotiate his relations with the hearing world. Uh, much of Sandy's energies as a mother were devoted to seeing that Jim got a proper education. And what Professor Derenfield and I came to understand and spend time in our book uh, analyzing uh, and analyzing the consequences of was that the proper education for the Zobrists meant an education that would fit Jim into the society of hearing people not the society of deaf people. At the time in the 1970s, on the crest of uh, education legislation and changes in public opinion and the dawning of the disability rights movement, there was an idea that uh, uh, deaf children can be completely integrated into uh, 
the Society of Able-Bodied People, and that was the best course for them. The Zobras spent a lot of time in the next two decades shopping for educational opportunities to make this happen. The first opportunities uh, that they took advantage of were Jim's education in primary school, and I guess in what we would call the equivalent of kindergarten and the early grades at the Barber Center in Erie, Pennsylvania. This was a private facility for disabled children that was started by a woman named Gertrude Barber, who had come to understand uh, in the years after World War II that the large majority of children with disabilities weren't being educated anywhere. And she started this school in Erie, Pennsylvania. But the school only went so far. And uh, when Jim had exhausted the possibilities of being educated in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Barber Center, the Zobra shopped for opportunities for him. Um, and that eventually led to their relocating in Tucson, Arizona. Jim, uh, meanwhile, just as uh, so that he doesn't disappear from the narrative of his parents' guidance, uh, came to uh, absorb and eventually, as he got older, fully agree with the course of uh, study and ultimately life that his parents had set him in. Uh, Jim never uh, aspired to be part of the deaf community or deaf culture, but rather to find ways to fit into the hearing world. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Professor Gerber. Your introduction of Zem Zuber's early life and his education and the, the interesting story about him as a deaf people, but living in a much more hearing society and his, his encounters with hearing, both hearing and deaf societies. So my next question is that, could you please talk a little bit about, I mean, Jim Zora's enrollment and experience in the Arizona School of Deaf and Blind? I think that's a very important site and uh, I want to say place in both in his own life and this book. Uh, well, I, I wrote about that, and Professor Derenfeld and I agreed that I could talk about that, and I'll address it briefly. Uh, after Jim had exhausted the resources available to him at the Barber Center, uh, his parents faced a choice as to where he was going to be educated. The reputation of the Erie, Pennsylvania Public Schools for educating children with disabilities was poor at the time. And in fact, uh, there was an action before the U.S. Civil Rights uh, Depart uh, Office involving the uh, poor education of, dis of disabled children in Erie, Pennsylvania. Jim's parents didn't want to send him to a residential school, which would have him away from home. So Sandy Zobrist, in her role as the uh, principal negotiator and explorer of opportunities for Jim, uh, wrote... Um, deaf organizations for advice on where it was that Jim might be well-educated. One of the places that came up in her explorations was the Arizona School for the Deaf and for the Blind, which was then in a suburb of Tucson, Arizona, but is now within the city uh, boundaries of Tucson. Um, well, I believe uh, it came to be within the boundaries of Tucson. Um, and without knowing a great deal about uh, the specific philosophy of education of the school, 
but seeing an opportunity to relocate to a place where if they established residence, Jim would be educated uh, for without having to pay for it because the Arizona school is part of the public school system in Arizona. They decided to move to, uh, to Tucson, Arizona or one of its suburbs. Um, they also had relatives there to help them resettle uh, family. So uh, Jim was enrolled in the Arizona School for the Deaf and the Blind. And they discovered within a short period of time that the Arizona School had a complicated curriculum that fitted children simultaneously to communicate with hearing people, but also prepared them for life as deaf people, uh, learning um, sign language with facility and um, learning the history of deafness and learning about and participating in in deaf culture. Uh, This did not suit the Zobris definition of how they wanted Jim to be educated. They had thought it was a public school, like a regular public school, and he would be surrounded by influences from the able-bodied community. But this was not the case, and the teachers did not see that as uh, the goal of the institution. There were other things as well that led them to want to take Jim out of that school. They felt he was smarter than the curriculum uh, enabled him to be educated. So it was at this point uh, that um, Sandy and Larry Zobris, and Sandy in particular because she had gone to the Arizona School for the Deaf and the Blind to make various complaints and to uh, ask various questions about Jim's education. It was at this point that they decided to remove Jim from uh, the Arizona School and put him into a regular uh, public school in the neighborhood in which they lived, which was a suburb of Tucson. Thank you so much. Wasn't there there a problem also with uh, discipline in that uh, school? And they they were alarmed by the lack of uh, order that they found there. That was among the other problems that Sandy reacted to, yes. Thank you so much, Professor Durfield. And Professor Gerber, so um, I mean, we learned from your talk is about okay, um, James, James and his family feel frustrated about the education James um, took in in the Arizona school. So my next question is that we know this kind of frustration finally lead to the lawsuit. Zobras verdict Catalina Food Hill Food Hill School District. So my question, my next question is about, can, could you please talk a little bit about arranging of this lawsuit? Why don't I, uh, we talked a, a little bit earlier about uh, talking about the uh, Catholic school that Jim Zobrest was in. Maybe this is the time to talk about that a little bit. So as uh, Professor Gerber said, uh, Jim Zobrest went to um, public school for a few years, and then the time came to look at high school, but the school district, the Catalina uh, Woodhill School District, did not have a high school at that time. So in considering their choices, uh, one of the possibilities that the school officials mentioned was, why don't you go to a public school in a surrounding district? 
and they had no interest uh, in that because they had a rather uh, jaundiced view of what was going on in public education then. And so because they were Catholics and because they uh, felt that a Catholic education was a good moral foundation for their son, uh, they decided to send their son to Sal Point Catholic High School, which was run by the Carmelite order. Uh, it didn't hurt that Sal Point had an excellent athletic program and Jim was very interested in uh, basketball. Uh, as far as uh, Jim's life in the high school, uh, there are different accounts. Some say that he was getting along well, he told jokes, and uh, he had lots of friends. Uh, those tended to be reports by teachers or administrators who may not have fully appreciated what Jim was experiencing. Uh, we know that Jim uh, said himself uh, to the uh, editor of the yearbook that he felt alone uh, much of the time. He felt isolated, uh, that uh, people with um, full hearing uh, would found it too difficult to talk to him more than saying, hello, how are you doing? How's it going? Something very superficial. Uh, it helped that his brother Sam, his younger brother Sam, joined uh, that school uh, fairly soon after Jim started. Um, but I think, as Jim pointed out to us, he was really much more, felt much more comfortable in junior high than in uh, high school. And uh, we can see this in a number of ways. And some of his friends did not continue to that high school, and uh, that contributed to a sense of isolation. He played basketball, wanted to go to play uh, collegiate basketball, uh, but that proved to be difficult, too, because of the coach's um, uh, attitude, <laughs> uh, I think, toward uh, players with disabilities, particularly those with deafness, because they couldn't hear commands that were said immediately or because they didn't adjust quickly enough. Jim did have an interpreter. The interpreter was expensive, sign language interpreter. And he was, he was good, um, and uh, he was just a little older than Jim, and they got along well. Uh, and this interpreter would coach teachers how to um, make the po best possible communication for Jim uh, occur. And, um, of course, it was exhausting for the interpreter. He was on call constantly. Uh, eventually, he developed carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, he needed a break, um, and it was difficult. And it was difficult for the Zobras to pay for it. Uh, they went bankrupt uh, for several reasons. Uh, one of them, Professor Gerber alluded to, uh, with their business in Tucson failing, uh, mainly because of arson. Uh, so when we talked to Jim Zobrest, he thought he got a good education and he was a, quote, good student. He graduated with a B average. And, but he said to us, his happiest day at Sal Point is the day his name was called at graduation to pick up his diploma. So uh, that tells you uh, something about what he experienced there. Of course, the school was religious. Uh, there were um, uh, brothers, the Carmelite order, 
Uh, there were crucifixes. Uh, theology was a required course. Daily mass. Uh, Jim Zobers didn't go to that, but uh, it suffused the school environment. There were uh, retreats, religious retreats. There was an emphasis on community service. Uh, so uh, religion was certainly very much in, integral to uh, the, the experience that um, all students there uh, had. So that's kind of a brief capsule summary of Jim in uh, South Point. As for the lawsuit, the school district, the Catalina Foothill School District, refused to pay for the interpreter that everybody agreed Jim needed. I mean, Jim did speech read. Uh, he did have his brother, but his brother wasn't in the same classes. Uh, his brother wasn't on the basketball team uh, either. And uh, Jim was not going to be able to succeed in that mainstream experience without an interpreter. Everybody agreed to that. And the question was, was it required on the part of the public authorities? And the Zobras believed that it was required by the uh, Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975 which required uh, a free and appropriate public education for uh, all children with disabilities. Uh, and they also argued that it was their religious freedom under the uh, free exercise clause of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, that they had a right to send their son to a Catholic school and have the public school district pay for the interpreter. Remember, there's no public high school in the district. So the Zobras were invited to ship their son off to another school, public school, and they had no interest in that. So, um, and, and in some ways, I think the Zobras felt betrayed by the public school officials, that they had been assured that he would continue to have an interpreter at South Point Catholic School in the same way that he had had in the public junior high. Uh, and uh, so they heard, the, the family heard one thing, and the school officials uh, were thinking another thing. Uh, in any event, um, Sandy Zobrest made it plain that uh, she was going to sue unless some action was taken. The interpreter cost about $8,400 a year, which was a, a large sum for them. So... Uh, while Sandy Zobrist is talking to a, um, uh, the uh, uh, Arizona Center for Law and the Public Interest about representation uh, in federal court, it had to be a federal court, uh, the school officials were checking with their attorney and with the deputy county attorney, uh, and they came to the conclusion, uh, and the attorney general, the state, that uh, the law, the Education uh, for All Handicapped Children Act, did not require them to pay for this interpreter. So uh, the trajectory of the lawsuit began in Tucson in front of a federal court judge named Richard Bilby. And Richard Bilby was a singularly unsympathetic um, <laughs> judge uh, because, as he said, he knew a friend who had 
uh, a disabled member of a deaf uh, disabled member of his family, and he knew about that, so that was good enough. Uh, presum presumptuous, to say the least. In any event, he bought the uh, school district's line that the First Amendment forbade um, this kind of public aid uh, in the form of a sign language interpreter for Jim Zobrist. So that's the first of three levels that the court um, process involved, and Jim Zobrest lost. Uh, so that meant it had to go up to the next highest level, which was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for the United States uh, in, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, the judges there, after a long period of delay, finally decided that Judge Bilby, the lower court judge, was correct, that the First Amendment did not allow aid to those children uh, in a Catholic school who had disabilities. Um, I should mention that another member of the uh, legal team for the Zobrest was the father of Jim's first teacher in Erie, Pennsylvania at this barber uh, center that Professor Gerber referred to a moment ago. And the father's name was William Bentley Ball, one of the most estimable and uh, accomplished and experienced attorneys involving church and state in the United States. He himself would handle nine cases before the Supreme Court and assist in 25 others, and won some of them. Uh, the, the case takes a decided turn because Ball's interest was primarily church and state in lowering the wall separating church and state. Uh, although his daughter was involved in teaching children who had disabilities and his son-in-law wasn't uh, deaf and had a prominent position in the deaf community, uh, Attorney Ball's interest was in trying to help Catholic education primarily. And in that, along the way, it would help uh, children with disabilities. But that was a secondary consideration. Uh, in any event, after the Ninth Circuit Court rejected the Zobrest petition to have their interpreter paid for, the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, when it was there, the issues were basically these two. Was it legal for a government to provide special and ongoing educational assistance in a religious school to someone who had disabilities? And secondly, what was a sign language interpreter really like? Was the interpreter a neutral kind of a machine, a human machine, or uh, was this person really an educator who could promote religion, who had that effect of promoting religion? Um, the attorney for the school district, uh, John Richardson, uh, argued that the First Amendment did uh, apply and that there was nothing that the school district was ob obligated to do. For instance, uh, Richardson pointed out to the court that an interpreter in a theology class, for instance, might say, Jesus Christ was the Son of God 
or that he died to save his sins. And that interpreter, if the Zobrist had their way, would be paid with tax money. So this, from Richardson's point of view, was absolutely uh, unthinkable. Richardson also pointed out the Supreme Court had previously declared illegal the use of state-paid tape recorders. And if if uh, William Bentley Ball is going to argue that the interpreter is like a tape recorder, well, the Supreme Court's already said you can't have a state-paid tape recorder. Uh, long story short, the Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote the opinion, and he had for years lamented uh, the jurisprudence the court had um, delivered concerning uh, church and state. And uh, he argued that uh, there was no establishment here uh, and that to deny this aid would be to discriminate uh, against this arrest, and that would be uh, impermissible. So for the first time, the Supreme Court permitted a state-paid employee to be part of a religious school's educational program. And um, one of the offshoots of this, I haven't mentioned this before, but uh, William Bentley Ball, the Zobrist attorney, was really hoping to use this case as a vehicle to strike down a previous test the Supreme Court had handed down to adjudicate matters like this one, and that's called the Lemon Test. And in the Lemon Test, there's, a, there's three steps, three parts to it to determine whether a, a state law is, is legal. And from um, Ball's point of view, he wanted that lemon test struck down because it seemed to be used as a weapon against state aid for religion or state aid for disability, uh, students with disabilities. Uh, in the end, Chief Justice Rehnquist, in a five to four majority opinion, wrote that the lemon test, he, he ignored it. He didn't do anything about it. Well, uh, long uh, to uh, cut my story a little bit short, uh, the Zobrist won that uh, case, and they were uh, paid um, by the uh, school district. School district had to pay all the attorneys. School district had to pay for the interpreter. And it was an important moment because it was part of what the court had been doing for some a few decades, trying to figure out ways in which uh, the state, could permissibly aid students or programs in religious schools. Disability was an, an adjunct to that uh, issue. There, there had been another case shortly before this over, about 10 years before, uh, it involved a, a girl in a New York district, uh, Amy Rowley. And uh, William Rehnquist also handled that case. And in that case, this deaf girl uh, wanted to have an interpreter and wanted the school to pay for it. And uh, William Rehnquist wrote the opinion in that case as well, this earlier case, in which he said the deaf girl did not need the interpreter and she was not entitled under the law to aid that would allow her to develop fully, only adequately only approximately what other students could get. So you, the state is not obliged to do more than kind of the minimum, uh, if you will. 
Well, that's that's kind of the trajectory of the case. Uh, uh, Professor Gerber may want to add a point or two to what I've said. No, I think that was a wonderful summary of the uh, the origins of the lawsuit, the progress of the lawsuit through the courts, and the nature of the Supreme Court's uh, decision. I am prepared to talk about um, the consequences of the decision for uh, the law. Uh, Church-state separationists, I think, were, were very apprehensive after the 1993 decision in the Zobris case that the Zobris case would be uh, a strong statement in behalf of the tearing down of the wall of separation between church and state that had been guiding many court decisions in the post-World War II decades. Um, they were much more apprehensive about that than they were concerned about how it might be used uh, for the good in helping children with disabilities. That did not happen. The way in which the uh, decision was framed did not make the Zobris case a significant factor in tearing down the wall of separation. And I'll explain why uh, to some extent in a minute. The Zobris case was of value in regard to children with disabilities in one context soon after the decision. And that was in 1997 in a significant uh, Supreme Court decision in the case of Augustini versus Felton, which overturned a court's this, uh, another decision that the court had made in 1985. The issue at stake in the uh, Augustini case in 1997 was a New York City public school program that offered remedial educational opportunities to individual children in religious schools. And a significant number of these children had learning disabilities. These were poor kids who had problems in learning. And some of these problems were organic and psychological problems. Um, the court had ruled earlier that any public resources to help those children uh, enhance their education uh, that could build on the limited um, resources available to uh, religious schools were a breach of the wall of separation between church and state, uh, and that this was unconstitutional. But using the Zobris case as a precedent, the court now ruled that public resources that benefited children uh, and not their schools uh, directly, but the uh, benefit of the children, uh, were not unconstitutional. Uh, and in the background to the court's decision was the fact that the New York State, New York City Board of Education, after the first decision in 1985, had spent enormous amounts of money trying to help these kids and gone to enormous difficulties to create room for uh, public help in doing so. And uh, they were unsuccessful until uh, 1997 when the Zobris case was used to, uh, for the court to overturn its own decision in 1985. The court ruled that public school teachers could now instruct these learning disabled children uh, in religious schools if the content of those children, uh, teachers uh, teaching was secular, that didn't involve religion, and there was no excessive administrative entanglement between 
the New York City Board of Education and the Catholic parochial schools and their uh, clerical leadership. In the years since then, because of the way in which these church-state questions have presented themselves in litigation, Zobris has not served as a precedent in major cases that have radically changed church-state law and education, and the court has been radically changing church-state law and education. For example, significant recent decisions that have shifted the balance in uh, uh, using public resources to make uh, the path into and through uh, religious schools easier. These cases have come from Missouri, New Mexico, and Maine. And they're ones involving resources given directly to the children themselves, and not necessarily children with disabilities or without disabilities, just children in general. And in one case, uh, there involved a grant for physical improvement of school grounds and playgrounds and other tuition assistance for parents. The Zobris case was to help an individual kid. And the uh, Augustini versus Felton case was to help individual kids who had learning disabilities and were behind in school. These other and newer cases were really posed at the institutional level and helped kids um, implicitly, but down the line from direct funding. Uh, From my own point of view as a church-state separationist, um, it's quite suitable uh, to see the, uh, the limited nature of the Zobris de- decision um, because uh, I think that uh, helping children to become educated uh, and to get an equitable, uh, equitable resources in uh, benefiting their, that effort uh, is a worthwhile thing for us to do. And it doesn't necessarily disturb greatly the boundaries of uh, religion and uh, public life and and uh, the the state, so Zobrist helped greatly with one situation which involved uh, a very large number of children, but beyond that, it has been mentioned seldom in the court's deliberate efforts to tear down the boundaries of church and state. Oh, thank you so much, Professor Derenfield and Professor Gerber. <laughs> Thanks for your introduction and survey of the origin of the lawsuit and its, and the, its final decision and, the, and its influence on the, I mean, in American history. So my last question today is about just beyond the history. So I want, I want to invite you, both of you, to talk about uh, the present and the future of disability rights in America over now, I mean, over three decades after ADA, the very important uh, legislation. Well, uh, let, me, let me begin by saying that um, ADA has had a positive effect, but um, we still are in a position where the majority, the large majority, of people with disabilities are unemployed. And uh, integrating people with disabilities into the workforce has been a much more complicated, protracted, and frustrating process than uh, ADA is able to facilitate on its own for reasons that have to do with the structural limitations of ADA as law. Uh, We really need to work on the question of the integration of people with disabilities into the workforce, because until the majority of people with disabilities 
are able to work and support themselves and be productive members of society and be allowed to make a contribution to the general welfare as well as their own, um, people with disabilities will lag behind the rest of the population. I think we have a long way to go to the extent that most people with disabilities are unemployed. In the, in the Buffalo area, we are spending uh, lots of uh, money and time to make sure that curbs at street intersections uh, are flush with the uh, road itself or the street itself. Well, that's nice, <laughs> but that is such a small uh, matter, uh, really. Um, on a more positive note, uh, <clears throat> I had a uh, student this summer who is in a wheelchair and he was recommended very highly to me by a colleague as a possible research assistant for me. And he came and we had a meeting. I always have a meeting with whoever's thinking of working with me. And uh, I was to have him do a lot of work uh, using a computer and various internet sites and so on. But I think it's a sign of the times, I hope, that I didn't ask him, can you do this job? Let's see you work a computer. Uh, I just took him at his word that he could do it unless he proved otherwise. Uh, as I say, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but maybe I wouldn't have had that attitude 10, 20 years ago. So I hope there's something that's causing us to look at people and what they can do and not what they look like. Okay, thank you so much, Professor Gerber and Professor Durenfield. <clears throat> Thanks so much. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, after several decades of ADA, there are still a lot of things we needed to do and we should do, should do to improve the situation of uh, of the people and life and situation of people with disabilities and to promote disability rights in American society. I, and then I want to say thank you again for for you coming to my um, episode to talk about your book, which is a very interesting book. And I highly recommend everybody to read this book, Disability Rights and Religious Liberty in Education. That's our website today. Thank you.